This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for all those, like you and me, who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Now, granted, in the physical sense, that's a little bit harder to do these days than it traditionally is, although it's never easy. Uh, But right now, we're kind of all on lockdown, uh, self-isolation, social distancing, and whatnot. Uh, Here where I am, maybe a little bit more than uh, than where you are, although each day, each passing day, uh, things are progressing and maybe getting a little bit more restrictive. And this is an opportunity for us to uh, to spend this Lent well and spend it in prayer and in fasting and in almsgiving in the ways that are available to us. And, and some of these ways are available to us because um, they've been thrust upon us, and that's that's okay. In fact, I've heard some some people say that the best Lent they ever had was when they let someone else pick their penance. Of course, they meant like their their best friend or their spouse. Uh, in this case, it is being picked for us, though, isn't it? We have this um, this penance that's been picked for us that makes life difficult. Our habits that we that we automatically go to they're taken from us. Uh, going out to eat or going to the bar or going to uh, to the movies or whatever it is that happens to be our our um, distraction of choice, many of them are taken away. Sundays, there's no sports on TV. Can't do that, right? Uh, all of a sudden, things are brought sharply into focus. And even, even the public celebration of Mass has been removed now, uh, at last report that I saw, in every diocese across the United States. Everywhere you go, we are... Uh, not able to publicly celebrate the mass. Now let's let's look at those words because those words are important. Uh, here in in my diocese, the words that they have been using are that the public celebration of mass is suspended. Why do we say it? Because mass is not canceled. There is mass going on every single day. Uh, every priest says mass every single day. Right. So we we have the church still praying. Uh, just like when, when Pope Benedict, when he stepped down from the papacy, he went and he dedicated himself to prayer and prayer on behalf of the church. And this is what monks and nuns do every day. They dedicate their lives to prayer on behalf of the church. So mass is still going on, and these are not private masses. They are masses that are celebrated privately. And I say that because, and, and I'm, this is not original to me, uh, this is what the church says. In the encyclical Mysterium Fide, Pope Paul VI says this, and I quote, It is also fitting for us to recall the conclusion that can be drawn from this about the public and social nature of each and every Mass. For each and every Mass is not something private, even if a priest celebrates it privately. Instead, it is an act of Christ and of the church. In offering this sacrifice, the church learns to offer herself as a sacrifice for all, and she applies the unique and infinite redemptive power of the sacrifice of the cross to the salvation of the whole world. 
For every Mass that is celebrated is being offered not just for the salvation of certain people, but also for the salvation of the whole world. The conclusion from this is that even though active participation by many faithful is of its very nature particularly fitting when the Mass is celebrated, still, there is no reason to criticize, but rather only to approve a Mass that a priest celebrates privately, for a good reason, in accordance with the regulations and legitimate traditions of the Church, even when only a server uh, to make responses is present. For such a Mass brings rich and abundant treasure of special graces to help the priest himself, the faithful, the whole church, and the whole world toward salvation. And this same abundance of graces is not gained through mere reception of Holy Communion. That's from Mysterium Fide. It's number 32, uh, the paragraph there, from Pope Paul VI. And of course, that's particularly salient for us right now because many of us are unable to receive the Eucharist at this time. And when I say many of us, that means like almost everybody in the United States with the exception of priests, deacons, and maybe a few church staff members where uh, the case may be. And I love that that he said that these graces that come to us through the Mass are not solely transmitted by the reception of communion, right? You and I are receiving graces that are helping us towards salvation, even though we're unable to participate through the reception of the Eucharist. And so I want to encourage you, during this time where we are uh, separated from being able to participate actively in the liturgy, uh, I want to encourage you to take the time to deepen and develop your devotional life. Enter into a life of prayer. As a family, gather around uh, on Sunday morning. If you don't have, if your priest isn't live streaming or recording the Mass, there are plenty of priests who are. Maybe you can't watch the Mass from your own parish, but EWTN, Catholic TV, and all over Facebook and Twitter, you can find the Mass. So I encourage you to read the readings, the Mass readings with your family around the table, uh, the coffee table. Uh, watch a Mass if you have that ability to do so. And make us an active spiritual communion. You say, God, I'm unable to receive you in the Eucharist today, but I want to be united to you, right? I, and there's, a, there's a beautiful prayer that I'm not doing justice uh, that you can find in a number of places. In fact, I'll put it up on our social media, this act of spiritual communion uh, that God wants to come and unite with us even if we are unable to receive the Eucharist on a given day. And this is something that you can take with you beyond this specific season. If there's ever a time where you are sick and unable to come to Mass, uh, if you just want to, in the first thing in the morning, if you can't make it to daily Mass before you start with your day, enter into this, this um, prayer of spiritual communion and unite your day to Christ. Right? We've been talking over the last couple of weeks about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And there's no better way to do that than to start the day saying, God, I want you to be part of my day. And not just part of my day, but the orienting, central, directional part of my day. Come and be with me in my midst and help me uh, because I need your grace. I need the graces of the Mass to give me courage and give me strength and give me wisdom and give me direction today. And this is available to us 
every single day by virtue of the sacrifice of the Mass that is being made by every priest in every diocese on every altar around the world. Also, I want to take some time, and I want to encourage you to take some time, to, uh, to be grateful, intentionally grateful for our priests. I follow a whole bunch of priests on social media, and I have to tell you, I am so uh, encouraged by what I see in them. Uh, the, the amount of effort that they are going to maintain connection with their people and to offer the sacraments to their people and to pray for their people. Uh, I have seen the, the least tech-savvy priests in the world saying, you know what, I am going to find a way to live stream this and prayers and whatever else I can do so that, that my, my people aren't abandoned. And it's just a beautiful image of the fact that even in the darkest scenarios, God does not abandon us, and he gives us priests and good fathers who walk with us through those difficulties. I want to call out specifically, um, there are priests that, this was back on the the 18th, so a few days ago, Um, a number of priests in Italy have passed away from from the virus. And specifically, they've passed away from the virus because many of them, because they were out with the people. Yes, the public celebration of Mass is suspended. Yes, the people are unable to receive the Eucharist. But the priests are going out and they're ministering to the people in their time of need. And many of them, like St. Damien of Molokai, have given their life because of their care and their love for their people. And these 26 Italian priests who have died, I'm going to post their names up on social media. I really want to invite you to go to uh, uh, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. I want you to look at these names. I want you to pray for them, pray for the repose of their soul. And I want you to pray in another way. I want you to pray that God would raise up priests, raise up, Men, not just who uh, don't have anything better to do with their life or who can't get a date or, what you know, all the things that you, someone else is going to be a priest. No, no, no. I want you to ask that God would raise up priests who care for their people as much as these 26 priests did. To, that God would raise up priests uh, who give entirely of themselves in their deep love for the people of God and their love for God himself. That they would pour out their lives as an offering. Priests like this don't just happen. They come from families who encourage vocations. They come from families who prioritize devotional life, who spend time in prayer. And of course, yes, there's always exceptions where God miraculously calls someone uh, out of a non-religious family and maybe they weren't even part of the church and God calls them and draws them in. That's the exception, though. Priests are raised by families who love and live the faith. And priests are called by the Holy Spirit every day. So let's pray for the repose of the soul of these 26 priests and any others that have died in the line of mercy, of of giving out the love of the church, of displaying the love of Christ in crisis moments. And then let's pray for those that God will raise up and put in their place all around the world men who, like them, will give their lives for the church. 
Today, we're talking specifically about this idea of how we live out our faith in the time of uh, quarantine. How do we do this? And what does it mean for us when there is no public celebration of Mass? We're going to be talking today with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, who's an assistant professor of theology from Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He's the author of the book, Grace, Predestination, and the Permission of Sin, a Thomistic Analysis from Catholic University of America Press back in 2019. Uh, And he's written a piece here recently called, Why Canceling Public Masses is the Right Spiritual Decision for the Faithful. It's a little bit of a, a controversial opinion, and it's certainly one that is Uh, not widely disseminated as I have been watching Twitter and social media, but I think that it's a perspective that's very important for us to look at. And so I'm very thrilled. I'm, uh, I've followed, followed you for a while, Taylor on social media. And this is just the first opportunity that I've had to have you on. I I appreciate the the piece and uh, let's break into it a little bit. The internet has no shortage of opinions and very often, they have no shortage of, of, of opinions that people might not utter out in public. Uh, and so I really appreciated the piece because it takes the time to respond to some, um, maybe some underformed, overzealous opinions about how we should behave. I've seen a lot of people really upset with our bishops uh, about the, the cancellation of the public not the public masses, but the public celebration of masses, because every mass, of course, is uh, mystically uh, public. We are all part of every mass that happens, uh, whether we are in attendance or not. And so uh, we have now, I think it's every bishop in the United States, every diocese has suspended the public celebration of mass. And that, that causes a lot of anxiety. And you in this piece bring out some really, I think, important points about our duty to the common good. So maybe first start by talking about what was your initial reaction when it first hit your diocese and um, what precipitated this specific piece on your blog? Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, I think like everyone else, I was, um, my first thought when seeing that so many um, masses as you say, the masses themselves not being canceled, but the public celebration of the masses being canceled. I was, first of all, shocked. You know, um, I'm lifelong Catholic, uh, cradle Catholic, and you know, obviously, I've never seen anything like this, and I don't think you know my parents, my grandparents, anyone has. Um, so first, I was shocked, and then um, you know, being on Twitter, being on social media, started to see a lot of different takes on what the bishops were doing, um, and my immediate thought was that I thought the bishops were, of course, making the right decision. Um, I think they're making a prudential decision with the, the safe, the safety of the laity, primarily at the top of their concern. And I th- thought it was also the right spiritual decision. So as I started to see a number of um, not just disagreement with the bishop's decision, but really um, sort of vehement disagreements, um, and I think even some really uncharitable comments about what the bishops were doing, saying they were abandoning the faithful, things like that. Um, that's what kind of, I guess, made me want to just put out my own uh, thoughts as to why I thought the bishops were not just making a good decision as as if they were sort of 
um, secular figure safeguarding bodily health, but we're making actually a good spiritual and religious decision for the faithful as well. Now, before we get too far into why this is a good spiritual decision, I want to take a step back. Uh, and you are, uh, by accounts of just second, uh, just a guess based on your the name of your blog and the name of your book. Uh, your blog, of course, is uh, tomesplendor.wordpress.com. Uh, your book is a Thomistic analysis. I'm going to guess that you are a Thomist. <laughs> I am, yes. Happily, yes, and, and and of course, Saint Thomas Aquinas was um, was had a very strong Eucharistology, uh, and this Eucharistic theology really is what shapes a lot of our Catholic belief about the Eucharist. So let's take five steps back from this current situation that we're in, and mm-hmm. just talk about Thomas's view of of the Eucharist of the Mass and how we are incorporated as the faithful into these masses, even if we're not physically present. Yeah. Um, I mean, for Thomas, the Eucharist can only be understood through the lens of Christology, that is the study and understanding of Christ and Christ's work in and through and with the church. Um, And so for St. Thomas, um, the mass sort of the most proper spiritual understanding of the Mass is that this is a sacramental action which has been inaugurated by Christ and which really most fully Christ is the one who's offering the Mass. Um, So, you know, we use this phrase that the priest only acts as a minister of the Eucharist in persona Christe, so in and through Christ as the one true high priest. Um, So it isn't for St. Thomas as if we've got, you know, a whole bunch, you know, several thousands or millions of priests. There's really kind of just one priest and all of the, you know, pastors, associate pastors that we're familiar with, religious, et cetera, who are ordained are participating in that one, that one priesthood of Christ. So Christ is both the priest offering the sacrifice. And he's also, of course, the sacrificial victim of the sacrifice. Um, and so uh, that provides a kind of real unity for understanding the Mass, and for understanding it is all incorporated and unified in Christ. And so, um, based on that, you start to get some of these ideas like the idea of spiritual communion. Even if you're not present at actual communion of the Mass, even if you're not able to um, literally receive the body and blood of Christ, um, you you are still present and in communion with the Church through Christ. And so, in a certain sense, you are still present even at a so-called private mass, you are still present. Not only are you being prayed for explicitly, but you are incorporated with the mystical body of the church, which is the mystical body of Christ. And so the graces and the, the worship that are being offered to God are something that you are incorporated in as a Catholic, as a Christian, um, uh, in good standing with the church. So I think St. Thomas provides us with a little bit more spiritual and theological background to understand to understand why it might be the case that even if I'm not in the pews, I am very much in a real way still able, still able to participate and be in communion with the sacrifice of the man. We're talking today with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, and I've got a couple of examples here. One that is uh, practical and, and current, and... Uh, and another that is pop culture and uh, and probably not the most current, but I think 
I think, still applicable. I think in terms of we're experiencing this this uh, deprivation of receiving communion, and some people really have this uh, this visceral reaction to it because we have become used to the the frequent reception of communion uh, on a weekly and sometimes daily basis, and yet this is not the reality everywhere you go. Uh, you have places in in Africa where the priest can only come by once a month or so. Uh, you have places in the Amazon where you might only be able to receive the Eucharist uh, once a year. And then I think back to the, the a time in Japan's history where uh, the missionaries were chased out, and yet the influence of Catholicism had taken hold. And you had this whole community of Catholics who were getting married, who were uh, baptizing children, who were doing everything they could to live out their faith, even though no mass was being uh, said for them and they weren't, or, or with them, and they weren't able to receive the Eucharist. And this isn't for, you know, a, a couple of years or a decade. This is for generations that the people who are continuing this were people who never had the benefit of receiving uh, the, the Eucharist themselves until many years later. Uh, and so I think of, of those people and one, my own experience in this allows me to have a little bit of solidarity with them, to recognize uh, and maybe even direct my prayers for the benefit of those who are currently going without, whether it be because of shortage of priests or whether it be because of, of some oppression as it was for the people of Japan for so many, for so many years. Um, so that's the, the, my first thought. And the second thought uh, is thinking of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, this old, <laughs> 80s movie and uh and it's a time travel movie and of course uh, at one point in the movie they're like oh we can't get in there because we don't have keys and they're like oh, i know i'm we're just going to tell ourselves come back in the future and leave a key for us later and then they reach in and of course the key is there uh when we participate in the, in this one mass that you're talking about not only one victim and one priest but only one mass in all of of time because God being outside of time does not repeat the mass. Rather, we are then joined to that mass at whatever time we happen to be there. And so it's, it's almost like saying, you know, I'm unable to receive right now, but I have been to this mass uh, before because I was joined with Christ in that place. And, and by virtue of that, I am joined into this mass, even though I'm, I'm unable to receive. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, this is where we talk about the mass is the representing of Calvary on the altar, not representing, of course, but sort of calling us back to that one singular event of Christ's own self-sacrifice on the cross. So we, we've already been participating in that. We've already been there and we're able to continue to unite ourselves there spiritually as our pastors. Um, continue to say Mass on our behalf. So I think that's right. I, I think that one of the silver linings to this, is, is, as you mentioned in your first thought, is that for many of us, we have had very easy access to the sacrament. And easy access to the sacraments is a good. I mean, that's precisely the mission of the Church, is to offer us easy access to the sacraments. So not having easy access to Mass, not having easy access perhaps even to confession, um, is not in and of itself good, and I would I would certainly state that strongly. But 
it can help us. God always brings, I think, good out of evil situations. And I think one of the sort of silver linings of this, I know at least for me personally, is that I think it, it already has begun to help me appreciate more having access to the sacrament, um, living in a place where the church has a strong enough infrastructure to provide that to us. As you mentioned, this is not always the case, not, not even in the past, but even today. There are, there are wide-reaching uh, uh, geographical places in the world where people do not have access to the sacraments. And in fact, we just finished a whole synod on um, the Amazon River Basin where those people do not have access to the sacraments very often. So I think one of the silver linings here, at least for me personally, and I suspect this might apply to others, is just to sort of created in me a kind of deeper and more authentic hunger for the sacraments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's kind of a state, you know, a statement that people use quite often. It's cliche, but I think there's some truth to it that, you know, longing makes the heart grow fonder. And this is certainly a situation in which we're growing in longing for Christ in the Eucharist. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where I'm waking up at 7.30 or whatever, 7 o'clock in the morning, trying to get, you know, all my kids ready to go to mass where there's that part it's like yeah this is i'm doing this partly out of obligation but the more that i am able to sort of think about what it was like to be away from the sacraments i think the more it will help me in the future to sort of purge out that obligation that view of obligation and to really just attend mass out of, sort of pure love for god and going to that that again that gk chesterton quote let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And we get to a place where we can so uh, make our faith an analytical one. And I think that this is even a, a, a danger of a, a drive for apologetics. We want to have all the right answers. And the truth of the matter is we are still part of a mystical church, and there are some things that we don't have the answers for. And so to allow ourselves to sit here and rest in this mystery and to hunger for this mystery— and, and it also brings me back to the beginning of Lent in the breviary. There's this beautiful reading by St. Augustine that talks about um, we are being, the hunger that we're feeling is a stretching to make room for a greater desire. Uh, so this last, I bring this up on the show pretty regularly, but we have this story of St. Thomas Aquinas, who at the end of his life, after a brilliant writing career and shaping the theology of the church, said, you know what? All of this was meaningless. This was straw because it doesn't go far enough. And so there is a, a greatness that by this continual reception and expectation of being able to receive, I, I think we haven't maybe stretched ourselves far enough. And so while this is uncomfortable, uh, I think that there is some deep spiritual fruit that if we allow ourselves to be stretched— if we allow ourselves to be humbled in the midst of this, uh, we're going to find new heights of our connection to God the Father. And that's what we're going to talk about here in the second segment, so don't go anywhere, uh, go, unless you're going to go over to social media where we've posted some links that will help enrich this discussion. Visit facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. When we come back, we're going to talk about what it means to preserve the common good how this can lead us into deeper devotion, and strangely enough, how the absence of the public celebration of Mass is an opportunity for evangelism. There's more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. And today we are talking with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, Assistant Professor of Theology from Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And we're, we're talking specifically about uh, responding to the, um, the dioceses and archdioceses all over the United States who have suspended the public celebration of Mass and what are we, the faithful, to make of that? Uh, I've seen a lot of opinions bouncing around here and there, and one of the things that I've seen pop up is people saying, well, the Eucharist is the source and the summit. It's the most important thing that we ever do, which is true. I am not denying that in any way. Uh, and so we ought to be willing to risk everything to receive it. And and I feel like I'm being prevented from that and in that frustration, it's leading to uh, to anger or sadness or something else. Uh, and this, of course, was the main impetus behind this this piece by Taylor Patrick O'Neill uh, called "Why Canceling Public Masses Is the Right Spiritual Decision for the Faithful." So, Taylor, talk to us a little bit about why is this the right decision. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of mixed emotions about this decision, and I understand them, and I think that we should um, appreciate those those feelings. Um, I think people are feeling frustrated that they um, can attend Mass. They have a longing to um, be able to come to the sacraments, especially in time of anxiety, fear, um, possibly even, you know, death. Um, so... What I took to be, though, the kind of fundamental error or the thing that I disagreed with on, on um, complaining that the bishops were making the wrong decision was that um, I think people are mistaking um, this situation um, for a situation where only their private good is, is concerned. So in other words, what I mean by that is it's certainly true that the martyrs or any number of great saints in history have been heroes by risking their own safety for the sake of um, attending mass or safeguarding the Eucharist or what have you. However, in this case, what the argument that I'm, that I try to make is that um, this this attendance of mass right now in this context, wherein you've got a virus that's potentially deadly, especially to the weak, um, and which is easily spread by people that don't even know they have the virus, the decisions that the bishops are making are, are the decisions for the sake of the common good. Um, so my not attending mass, um, as perhaps someone who is relatively healthy, perhaps I don't have a lot um, personally, to lose by attending mass, I need to be thinking about the people that I could possibly infect, um, the ripple effect that that might have. And so it's not just a question of me sort of making a sacrifice to go to mass. It's a question of what dangers am I putting other people into that they're not choosing those risks. They're not choosing those sacrifices. And so that idea of the common good over and against my private good, I think is really what the bishops have in mind. And I think that's totally in accord with proper Catholic moral thinking. So let's take this to uh, maybe uh, an analogy of a current situation. There are places in Africa right now where if you go to mass, you run the risk of a suicide bomber or a gunman coming into the church and 
and martyring everyone there. And that person would say, you know what? The mass is worth it to me. Even if it causes my death, the mass is worth it to me. Um, what, what I hear you saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that this would be like saying, I know that if I go to mass, everyone may die, but perhaps someone has put explosives in my shoe and I don't know it. And I would be then therefore the cause of their demise, which is a very different thing than risking the fact that someone else may come in and cause that damage. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, in other words, the, the, our attending of mass right now is really not something that only affects us. Mm-hmm. If it, if I had a safeguard, a guarantee that my attending mass might be risky, risky, but only for me, then I, I think I could make a prudential decision. And that prudential decision might involve me sort of risking my own good, right. um, my own bodily good for the sake of my, my own spiritual good. In this case, however, what we're talking about is, is, risking the good of other people the 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 life the bodily good and even the spiritual good of other people Mm -hmm. um and so i think that's really the decision like you said i think that's a a great analogy or a great example you know if i'm going to join a mass in the catacombs and maybe later it'll be found out that i attended and, and then i'll be you know put to death that's one thing but if i know i'm being tracked by the government or something and i know that there's a mass going on in the catacombs and i have reasonable uh, expectation that it will go on without it being found out unless I attend, in which case I might draw attention to it, in which case I'm putting everyone in danger. In that case, I think you'd be under a real moral obligation to say, okay, I should not attend at this mm-hmm. time. It, recently um, on Twitter, which is where apparently everything happens, specifically now that we're all quarantined, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo from the McGrath Institute of Church Life at the University of Notre Dame uh, told a similar story. He said uh, last week, before everything was locked down, they had been released from the dispensation to go to Mass, but Mass was still available. And so he and his family woke up and he was trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I, how do I handle this? Because I'm healthy and I want to go to Mass, but the dispensation's been released. Ultimately, he came to what you're saying. And he said, you know, I don't know if someone who is vulnerable is going to show up. And so he and his family stayed home and the priest relayed this story. One the, uh, an elderly member of the parish who is at, uh, at high risk came to the priest and said, um, father, where is everybody? And the priest looked at this parishioner and said, they're at home protecting you. And this is the truth of the situation that the bishops find themselves in. As they say, we need to protect the whole, uh, portion of the church, the whole body of Christ. We're talking today with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, Assistant Professor of Theology from Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And um, Taylor, as I, as I look at this situation, the common good sets off warning bells in the minds of some people because uh, of understandings, political understandings of what they believe that means. Uh, and and yet it's a central aspect of our faith that I think sometimes we in the West have forgotten because we are so individualistic uh, that in, in some ways that's good, right? We are individuals. We are persons. We are not uh, just a, a, a mesh or a conglomerate. And yet we do still have an obligation and a connection and a communion of saints with 
everybody else who's a member of the church, and we have res- responsibility for their good as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, following on Aristotle, says that part of what it is to be a human being at all, part of human nature is to be social. And that is a principle that's going to run, of course, through any institution which is human or which involves the good of humans, including the church. You know, the, the, the bride of Christ, the church, is a profoundly human institution in and through even the humanity of Christ. And so um, this idea of the common good is really just an idea that, you know, we would not forsake the good of other people for our own private good. And I think really all this comes back to is really just a kind of articulation of the highest commandment that we're called to, which is charity, which is to love others, to love others even more than we love ourselves. And so um, the church is a communion. It's a communion of persons, individual people that are each unique and special and loved by God in their individuality. Absolutely. One of my uh, mentors and professors used to say all the time, even if you were the only person who ever lived, Christ would have died for you and he would continue to offer his own self-sacrifice on the cross in the mass for you. Um, And that's quite true. Um, But we also exist in and through and with one another. And so the common good is, of course, higher than my own private good. And in fact, the two are not even at odds with each other, but they're actually related. So one of the things St. Thomas stresses quite a bit, I think, is that even if it might look like I could pit my own private good against the common good of the whole church, in actuality, what is best for the whole church is also going to be best for me as an individual. And I think that's what the bishops are running on right now. So let's talk about some of the goods that we receive by not being able to receive the Eucharist. Uh, One of the things that I have noticed is a a flood of uh, pursuing different practices, different prayer practices, uh, different devotional practices to help uh, help me grow in faith since the Eucharist is not readily available to me. And and I I love this this hunger we have, uh, the hunger we have for God being fulfilled uh, by seeking God in new and different ways than perhaps we are accustomed to. Yeah, um, you know, we're doing things like just just uh, recently, the, the Holy Father called on people to join with him in a rosary uh, in, re- in relation to the coronavirus. Um, people are tuning in online to... Um, Uh, masses being live streamed, different devotionals being live streamed. Um, You know, my own family this past Sunday, um, you know, we we started to ask, okay, well, since we can't attend mass, what can we do? Um, Not to replace mass, but given the fact that we can't attend, what kind of devotionals, prayers, readings can we do? And so I think it's in a certain way, it's inviting a more active um, participation, a more active jumping into devotionals and incorporating the life of the liturgy, the life of the church into our homes. And in a certain way, I think that that can be very good from just a kind of passive, well, it's Sunday, so I'll, I'll go to church and then I'll come home. Well, and statistically, we, it is such that people go to Mass on Sundays, and that maybe even uh, once or twice a month, and that is the extent of their of their faith. But as more and more things are getting shut down and sports are canceled and everything is kind of 
being removed from us one thing at a time, including our, our Sunday observance, there is this question and this reevaluation, which is kind of the central tenet of Lent anyway, of, wow, well, um, I guess I, I can live without the sports and without the, uh, the parties and the everything else that I have filled my life with. And now I have the opportunity in this silence to experience a hunger that maybe I have been numbing myself to and to experience um, God's voice nudging and whispering and, and annoying a little bit more readily because I don't have all these other distractions. And so I think ultimately, even for our own spiritual health in the long run, this, this Lenten, this great Lenten fast, great in the sense of large, um, is, is really ultimately exceptionally beneficial for us. Yeah, I think it's really fitting providentially that this has arrived during Lent. Um, I think it's going to go down for many of us as one of the more important Lents that we've, we've had in recent memory. Um, yeah, I agree with you completely. I think the, the greater emphasis on devotion and on putting ourselves into the rhythm of the church is really helpful for all of us. Um, one of the other things that I, I find to be extremely um, a cause of real joy, I think, is the fact that both on the national stage and secular media and also within the church, we're seeing a real emphasis put on the good of the weak the weakest around us, the elderly and those who have, um, you know, underlying uh, sicknesses or um, are immunocompromised. This, in a world that's sort of rapidly progressing towards seeing the dignity and worth of persons according to what function they can give or how what their age is or what their quality of life is, all of a sudden everyone or most people at least being in agreement about like, let's all take on ourselves sacrifices for the good of the weakest among us is really a breath of fresh air, I think, in contemporary Western culture. Well, and, and as you've said, there's been in multiple governments a move towards uh, legalized euthanasia. And so anytime that we have this opportunity to refocus our eyes and to see what it is that really matters, it's a good opportunity. So last, last question here for the show. Um, what is a practice that you and your family have taken up in the absence of mass? What, how have, has your devotional life deepened as a family? Yeah, well, you know, one thing is that we've been able to practice, you know, the liturgy of the word together this past week. So we read the readings from mass. Um, and I think that my children are, my children are young. I have five children and the oldest is seven, about to turn eight. So they're young. And so it's easy for them to just kind of come to mass and get into the rhythm of it. I think one of the, the, the perks here has been that they understand that something's going on, you know, we try not to scare them and, and they, have, they don't really have a whole lot of reason to be scared, you know, but um, they understand something's going on. So we can't go to mass, but to see that, okay, we're still going to read these readings. We're still going to do some of the things that we see ourselves doing at mass, I think shows to them that um, these are really important. Even if we can't make it to the building, you know, these are things that are going to be part and parcel of our life. So it further helps to sort of further entrench the continuity between our family life, I think, and the liturgical life of the church. So they don't see a separation. Just here's home, there's the church, and, you know, never the twain shall they meet. So I think that's been helpful. Um, and we've, you know, we've started to pray uh, a litany that's been going around on social media in the time of a plague. And um, just 
it's really provided an opportunity for us to pray together more as a family than when we're going to Mass. Again, going to Mass is great. Going to Mass is even better. I'm looking forward to being able to go back. But there have been these silver linings of increased devotionals and increased ties between our family and liturgically what's going on in the church. We've been talking today with Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill, Assistant Professor of Theology from Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We've got a link to his piece, Why Canceling Public Masses is the Right Spiritual Decision for the Faithful, and also to that litany he talked about over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. If you want to share this conversation with your friends or go back and catch something that you missed, all of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com. And as always, there is more to my conversation with Taylor than we had the time to air here. Uh, And I make that segment available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. This would be a great time to join that support community. Not only do you get access to this and all the other extra segments we've ever done, but there's uh, some extra conversation that is available back there. I'd love to have you be a part of it. And you've heard me say it before, this support community helps ensure that we can stay on the air. But what does that mean? Well, these supporters give as little as $5 a month, but uh, some give quite a bit more. And they do this to ensure that I have enough time uh, between my full-time job at a parish and trying to be a dad to these eight kids that we have here in the house. Uh, It takes a lot of energy and effort. And so that extra little bit of support makes it worthwhile each week to go and find the guest and to think of the topic and to do the, uh, the recording and the interviewing and the scheduling and the editing and then the uploading and the everything else that comes a part of that. And that support community provides just a little bit of compensation for all of that work. Otherwise, this would be a very expensive hobby and a fun hobby. Don't get me wrong. I love doing this show, but it is such a help. And so I invite you to be a part of that Patreon community because I believe that you will get extra benefit from the extra segments and the conversations that go on in that community. If you're interested, it's easy to join. Just go to OutsideTheWalls.com and up in the top right-hand corner, there's a link that says Patreon, support the show. Click that link and decide what level you want to support and we will see you in the super secret area very soon. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture comes from the book of Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. It is he who is rent, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bind our wounds. He will revive us after two days. On the third day, he will raise us up to live in his presence. Let us know, let us strive to know the Lord as certain as the dawn is his coming, and his judgment shines forth like the light of day. He will come to us like the rain, like spring rain that waters the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your piety is like a morning cloud, like the dew that early passes away. For this reason I smote them through the prophets. I slew them by the words of my mouth. For it is love that I desire, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That reading comes from the book of Hosea. And while we don't do the burnt offerings anymore, while that has been completely passed away, 
as Christ is the final sacrifice. Even today, we can lose sight of love, the love of God, and get caught up in the, the motions of the ritual. The ritual is good, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's ordained by God, but we have to let it serve our love for God and not just become perfunctory. Our reading from church history comes from a treatise on prayer by Tertullian and follows that same direction. Prayer is the offering in spirit that has done away with the sacrifices of old. What good do I receive from the multiplicity of your sacrifices, asks God. I have had enough burnt offerings of rams. I do not want the fat of lambs and the blood of bulls and goats. Who has asked for these from your hands? What God has asked for, we learn from the gospel. The hour will come, he says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and so he looks for worshipers who are like himself. We are true worshipers and true priests. We pray in the spirit and so offer in the spirit the sacrifice of prayer. Prayer is an offering that belongs to God and is acceptable to Him. It is the offering He has asked for, the offering He planned as His own. We must dedicate this offering with our whole heart. We must fatten it on faith, tend it by truth, keep it unblemished through innocence and clean through chastity, and crown it with love. We must escort it to the altar of God in a procession of good works, to the sound of psalms and hymns. Then it will gain for us all that we ask of God. Since God asks for prayer offered in spirit and in truth, how can he deny anything to this kind of prayer? How great is the evidence of its power as we read and hear and believe. Of old, prayer was able to rescue from fire and beasts and hunger even before it received its perfection from Christ. How much greater, then, is the power of Christian prayer? No longer does prayer bring an angel of comfort to the heart of a fiery furnace or close up the mouths of lions or transport the hungry food from the fields. No longer does it remove all sense of pain by the grace it wins for others, but it gives the armor of patience to those who suffer, who feel pain, who are distressed. It strengthens the power of grace so that faith may know what it is gaining from the Lord and understand what it is suffering for the name of God. In the past, prayer was able to bring down punishment, rout armies, withhold blessings of rain. Now, however, the prayer of the just turns aside the whole anger of God, keeps vigil for its enemies, pleads for persecutors. Is it any wonder that it can call down water from heaven when it could obtain fire from heaven as well? Prayer is the one thing that can conquer God. But Christ has willed that it should work no evil and has given it all power over good. Its only art is to call back the souls of the dead from the very journey into death, to give strength to the weak, to heal the sick, to exercise the possessed, to open prison cells, to free the innocent from their chains. Prayer cleanses from sin, drives away temptations, stamps out persecutions, comforts the faint-hearted, 
gives new strength to the courageous, brings travelers safely home, calms the waves, confounds robbers, feeds the poor, overrules the rich, lifts up the fallen, supports those who are falling, sustains those who stand firm. All the angels pray. Every creature prays. Cattle and wild beasts pray and bend the knee. As they come from their barns and caves, they look up to heaven and call out, lifting up their spirit in their own fashion. The birds, too, rise and lift themselves up to heaven. They open out their wings, instead of hands, in the form of a cross, and give voice to what seems to be a prayer. What more need be said on the duty of prayer? Even the Lord himself prayed. To him be honor and power forever and ever. Amen. That reading comes from a treatise on prayer by Tertullian. And if that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. This kind of prayer is difficult. It's tricky because it's not it's not a formula. It's not something we can pull out and say, well, if I say these words in this order, everything will be fine. Rather, this is the prayer that is heart joined to heart and spirit joined to spirit. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so this is not merely saying, okay, I'm going to pull out this prayer, this ancient prayer, and I'm going to say these words. Uh, This is saying, I'm going to, to find whatever vessel I can in prayer so that my heart will touch the heart of God. This doesn't mean that uh, that old prayers are bad, quite the opposite. It is a very common thing for those who are in love to have a song, right? It's our song. They didn't come up with that song, and yet they've attached all of their emotion into that song, and they've incorporated it and, and owned it as their own, to express themselves to one another. So whether you pray extemporaneously, whatever comes to your mind and your mouth as you are listening to your heart, or whether you have a prayer that's ancient, that's well-written, that you completely resonate with and identify with, and you you tie your heart longing onto that, uh, it's fine. The, The key in this scenario is not just to say the words of the prayer, but to attach our heart to that prayer and let it be the vehicle that transports us to the very throne of God. As we talk about prayer, one of the things that I'm doing, I talked about a little bit last week and uh, wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull it off, but here we are. It's still going. Um, I am live streaming morning prayer at 6 a.m. Pacific, 8 a.m. Central, and Compline, Night Prayer at 9 p.m. Pacific, 11 Central, on Facebook Live. Please come join me there. Share your prayer intentions. I want to pray for those, and I want to invite you into this beautiful prayer of the church. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Anel Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.